little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Welcome, Talk Catholic, the website.com, your host, Tim Kilcoin. No agendas here, just the straight and narrow, through Mary to Jesus, the Catholic faith proclaimed and preserved. Hope to see you here every week. TalkCatholic.com. In the new year, really, this is the first regular format of a show, and we will continue on with our book review, Who Am I to Judge? We are in part three, which has to do with the seven keys for responding to relativism. And then in the first part of the show, I often go back and forth with a number of books. I am not finished by no means with the new springtime that never came by Bishop Schneider. We need to hear more from him on a daily basis. I particularly am going to zone in on Father Jerry Murray. Anything he says, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know Catholic doctrine, dogma, discipline, the way it is and has been handed down through the ages, it's canon lawyer, Father Gerald Murray. He's on the world over with Raymond Arroyo almost every week, and there'll be many more writings from Father Jerry in the new year. But I have a new book that I want to dive into today. It's a bit more of a secular analysis of the culture called The Marketing of Evil, How Radicals, Elitist, and Pseudo-Experts Sell Us Corruption Disguised as Freedom. David Capellian. It's one classic chapter after another on any number of the issues that are very much at your local school, especially the public school, there is an agenda. It's called the New World Order, and we really have got to zone in on it and be mindful of it. When I came aboard this radio station, I made it very clear with our owner, Marianne, that I'm going to make sure that my shows are relevant to the culture in which we live with real-life examples of where the devil is today. And I believe that this particular book, The Marketing of Evil, would be absolutely perfect for every priest's sermons in 2024. Please, to all the prelates, don't throw rocks at me. I'm on your side. (laughs) I'm not trying to make it hurt. I want to lift you up and help you to recognize the joy that is in inherent to pointing out evil wherever it is. And St. John Paul II was very good with regard to this in a very balanced way. And then somewhere along the line, we lost our bearing. In any event, I like to uh, start with David Capellian's book. And I think I'm just going to randomly take a chapter because every one of these chapters is completely relevant. Number four, Multicultural Madness. How Western culture was turned upside down in one generation. This is a true story about America, about how the magnificent Judeo-Christian culture of my youth, which represented the hope of liberty for the world's oppressed, was so easily turned into mush in my lifetime. Let me begin with a brief story about my father. When he was only three years old, my dad was sentenced to death. That's right, the Turkish government was engaged in a deliberate campaign to force him, his mother, and his infant sister, along with hundreds of thousands of other Armenians, into the Syrian desert where they would die of starvation, disease, or worse, torture and death 
at the hands of brutal soldiers and roving bandits. It was 1915, at the peak of Islamic Turkey's gruesome premeditated genocide of the Christian Armenian population. One and a half million Armenians perished in those years at the hands of the Turkish regime, the 20th century's first genocide. Eventually, the hardships of their life led my father and grandmother to do what millions of persecuted people have done over the last few hundred years. They made the long voyage to one country that welcomed them and offered them freedom and an opportunity for a new life, the most blessed nation on earth, their promised land, America. Dad got married and had a family. I was the middle of three children growing up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. He provided for us, protected us, worried about us, loved us. He also rose to the top of his chosen profession. He lived a good and full life in a blessed land. That's just one story, my dad's story. Now multiply it by millions of similar cases of dispossessed and persecuted people coming to America and you'll have a vague idea of what America has long represented to the freedom-loving people of this world. Born Greek-Armenian, my dad became an American, as did thousands of other Armenians fleeing the genocide, as did Jews fleeing the Nazi Holocaust, Chinese seeking freedom from totalitarianism, Vietnamese and Cambodians escaping from their war-ravaged land, and countless others coming to America for a better life, starting with the English pilgrims that came here to escape religious persecution. In short, yearning to breathe free, have come to these shores from every land, speaking every language, but all wanting to become Americans. Becoming a naturalized American citizen, therefore, meant more than passing the federal government screening process and stumbling through a few civics questions. It meant an implicit and heartfelt agreement to abide not only by the nation's laws, but by its hidden, unwritten laws as well, the principles that made up the invisible but vital fabric of Western civilization. The individual is citizen sovereign, a balance of freedom and responsibility, unlimited opportunity to succeed or fail, independence and self-reliance, tolerance, the work ethic, equality under the law, and other core Judeo-Christian values. Underlying all of this, in turn, was the common belief, a belief so deep and unquestioned that it underpinned all of our major institutions, that there is a God that he is the God of the Bible, that the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount are the foundation of a good life and a great society, and that America had been uniquely blessed by that God. These were the underlying assumptions infusing America's dominant culture. All that started to change in the 1960s. One of the first times I remember the feeling of the foundations of America tremble was in 1964 during my ninth grade civics class. A girl, I don't remember her name, but I think she was from Tennessee, she had a very thick southern accent, answered a question from the teacher by mentioning something about God. How do you know there is a God, the teacher shot back. It was like an earth tremor. Just a faint quiver, really. A precursor to the tidal waves to come a few years later. A smiling, casual, off-handed swipe at the world as we knew it. How did the little southern girl know there was a God? Clearly taken back, she answered the teacher earnestly, incredulously, and her voice breaking, quote, because there is. She had quite naturally offered up the best answer anyone could possibly give. The teacher questioned the unquestionable, injecting doubt into a room of impressionable young boys and girls. It was one of those moments you remember 40 years later because it created a spark, a momentary contact with another dimension that alien dimension of cynicism and disbelief. And he refers to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which had pointed to the ultimate solution to racism 
the colorblind society where people would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, quote unquote. This seemed to complete the promise of the Declaration of Independence, he says, where all men are created equal. Well, all of this was hijacked by the forces of the 60s radical left. These were people who did not want peace and racial harmony. They condemned racial integration. Their aim was to indict America as a racist oppressor as a means to foment division, revolution, and societal transformation. But all this was off the radar of most Americans, who under the sway, perhaps of the nation's collective guilt over slavery and segregation, accepted what amounted to, quote, radical black studies. But it didn't end there. Soon there were women's studies, gay and lesbian studies. Before long, the world of academia was awash in, quote, multiculturalism. To fathom what's been happening to America, you must understand that during the 1960s, the moral foundation of America came under a full-blown assault. A generation later, the various liberation movements, sexual liberation, women's liberation, gay liberation, and so on, have blossomed into rampant infidelity, divorce, family breakdown, gender confusion, AIDS, abortion, and other mammoth problems. Moreover, the multicultural madness that started in the 60s has infused virtually all of American society with unending confusion. This moral inversion caused by multiculturalism, which proclaims that all cultures are equal, has extended to virtually every area of society, such as all religions are equal, all sexuality is equal, all life is equal. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to zone in on this egalitarian madness that he's referring to, that everybody's equal. Equal in intelligence, giftedness. Oh, we're all equal. I don't think so. I think that competition, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, in the public school realm, as well as private Catholic schools, etc., is a very good thing. And the plummeting SAT scores and all the rest of the inflationary uh, standards in education over the last 40 years, you know, are basically the, the consequence of thinking that... Uh, no big deal if somebody rises to the uh, back of the class, okay? Because they're really at the head of the class or they're in the middle of the class because we're all equal. No trophies here. In fact, let's get rid of modern sports because, you know, we're going to have to rely on certain people to pull the load when you don't have everybody on board. This is all part of this egalitarian ethos that is devastating to the Judeo-Christian ethos where we know that God has given multiple gifts, the same spirit, but he doesn't make everybody equal. The ramification of this in the church is very simple, and you saw it on display in the recent synod this past fall, where everybody's got to vote. Everybody's, this is a kind of a big tent. Remember the expression, this, we're going to be a big tent church. The Masonites are reveling in that, okay? Uh, they had a hundred-year plan, and they pulled it off, okay? No, we're not a drinking club where everybody's in. No inhibitions, no rules and regulations. No, we accept everybody. This is where this madness goes, and it will result in the patriotic church of China. Okay, that is what's coming on the part of the New World Order people, and we have a leadership in our church that's okay with it. This is wicked. This is wicked evil that we're dealing with. So be mindful in the area of sex. Oh, to each his own. No big deal. All sex is equal. <laughs> it is madness. Let there be no doubt. It's completely irrational as they attempt to foment division 
as David Capellian says, the fomenting of division is the Marxist playbook. Just get the parents and the kids at each other's throats. Okay, and when you can break down the objective morality that built up a great country and church, then you're you're on the way to fulfilling the playbook of Nikita Khrushchev of 1958. You know, take a look at his eight-point plan as to how to bring down a country. The global village has no parents. Ladies and gentlemen, we have got to be more mindful of a hidden agenda with regard to the more racial, multicultural overtones of an invasion of our border, okay? I did a very uh, decent show referencing St. Thomas Aquinas, and there is a very well-presented theology of immigration with St. Thomas Aquinas leading the charge. We're okay with bringing other people in from other countries legally. It's okay, all right? And we should have a say on which people are coming in. Nine million people are in this country right now that we don't know about. We don't know their backgrounds. They're coming in from China, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Ladies and gentlemen, there could be a 9-11 on steroids down the road. If we don't get a handle on walls that are good, kind of like the hedge in front of your house, boundaries are good. And recognizing the legitimacy of the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, where the local people know better. And I think we should hear all of them down in the border of Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, etc. Let's hear these people on TV on a daily basis and see what they're dealing with. Because out of sight, out of mind, which is kind of the policies. No, a lot of people think that they don't, you know, the uh, political forces don't know what they're doing. No, they know exactly what they're doing. Okay, this is the agenda that they are perpetrating to bring down our sovereign United States of America. And I'm trying to tell you, unfortunately, we got Catholic charities that's kind of tied into it relative to this immigration problem. I suggest evangelization as a way to spread God's gospel, not just bring in more people who you think are going to vote with you. Oh boy, do I pray that there will be a boomerang on that, when we begin to realize that some of these people from the Southern Hemisphere are Catholic, truly Catholic, and they don't want the tyranny of cultures that put their families in that kind of enslavement. So be careful what you wish for. All right, this is WQBH Radio 89.3 FM. We'll get right back to it. Who am I to judge? In the New Year uh, by Professor Edward Street. This is WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. In the bleak midwinter, exactly where we are, a beautiful version by Lorena McKenna.
So here are the key seven ways to confront relativism. Number one, lead with mercy. Professor Sri says, as the world turns away from the gospel and traditional values, we haven't just lost the Christian faith. We've lost the art of living. We don't know how to have a good marriage, how to parent well, how to have strong friendships and dating relationships, or how to care for the poor and suffering around us. With no moral compass guiding our lives, many have been injured by the culture, by people around them, and by their own misguided choices. This is why we need to go out to the world armed not just with the moral law, but also with mercy. The church does not wait for the wounded to knock on her doors. She looks for them on the streets. She gathers them in. She embraces them. She takes care of them. She makes them feel loved. To cure the wound of relativism, we need to lead with mercy. When talking with your relativistic friends about a moral issue, be aware that they might have more serious wounds other than their misunderstanding about the particular topic you're debating. They might not know how much God loves them, has a plan for them, wants them to be happy. They might not know how God longs to bestow his mercy on them, forgive them, and offer them a fresh start in life. They might not know how much God wants to heal them of whatever burdens they may be carrying, whether it is wounds from their past, a parent not involved in their lives, growing up in a broken home, abuse, feeling not good enough, disappointing others, feeling unworthy of love, or wounds from their present, breakups, feeling used in relationships, bad habits, pressure to achieve, isolation, an unhappy marriage, a divorce, feeling a failure as a parent. People need to know the heart of the gospel, not just a list of moral condemnations. They need to know these basic truths. God is madly in love with you. God, who is love, created you out of love and has a plan for your life. He invites you to share in his love, and even though you turned away from him, he constantly seeks you out of love to restore you to himself. He is so in love with you, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you so that you can be reunited with him. Take, for example, the problem of pornography, which affects so many people today. Imagine if I were to give a talk to college students about pornography and focus just on the moral law. Come on, you know this is wrong. This is a serious sin. You are breaking God's law when you do this. Muster up some self-control and quit looking at those dirty images. Quote, unquote. How helpful would that be? Many people already feel so ashamed and helpless about their addiction. They feel trapped, discouraged, and unable to break free. They need more than just the message of God's law. They need to know the power of God's mercy. But what if I said something like this? God knows what you're struggling with, and he loves you. He forgives you every time you stumble as long as you come back to him with repentant hearts. And most of all, he wants to help you. He wants to heal you. No matter how many times you fall, know he's waiting for you to turn back to him, especially in the sacrament of reconciliation. Also know that others have been right where you're at in this struggle, and God has changed them. He has liberated them. He has healed them. And he can do the same with you. His grace is powerful. This latter approach, obviously, would be much more effective. Leading with mercy gives people the encouragement they need to follow God's laws. He gives another example. Given the current crisis of reason, people in a secular world simply can't understand why a married couple shouldn't use contraception or why premarital sex is wrong. It just doesn't make sense to them. When these teachings are taken out of the context of God's plan of salvation and our life in Christ, they seem like arbitrary rules from the distant past being imposed on people today. What is supposed to be a light 
to our feet in a path to our human fulfillment comes off as puritanical nonsense and legalistic moralism. Without the sacramental life of grace, the church's beautiful moral teachings seem impossible to follow. People outside the church can't be expected to turn their lives around magically and practice heroic virtue overnight. They need more than a list of moral condemnations to help them on the way. They need encouragement. They need to know God's patience and mercy with their faults, and they need to know how much God's grace can help them do what they can never do by their own strength. Professor Sri is hitting a button that I have pushed many times, and that is, and especially in radio ministry, we're in the business and under obligation to pass on those very teachings of God's laws. And unfortunately, given the venue of our ministry being the airwaves, we don't have that flesh and blood connection immediate with so many of the people that are listening to us. Professor Sri is highlighting right now that the ears are just too often at least stone deaf given one's circumstances. As a good friend of mine, Larry is his name, often says, I've been there. They're in their comfort zone. They can't hear you. And he's got it. And I said in a previous show not too long ago that the divine attributes of our Lord are truth, beauty, and goodness the very essence of God. So if you want to bring a person to Christ, you've got those three avenues. And for us in radio, it's pretty much the heady, the cerebral, the apologetic. But don't think I wouldn't give anything to invite so many to my home and to see the beauty of this gift given to me and to play music for them and to let them walk the grounds. Okay, this would go a long way. I make sure that I have recreational opportunities for people here. And I guarantee you, if I was able to bring those people to this homestead, well, they'd be listening to the radio all the more 100% of the time. It's just the way human nature is. We need to know we're loved, and then we'll listen. We're not academics, and I'm ever grateful. (laughs) I'm ever grateful, as I've said a hundred times, maybe. God chose fishermen, not PhDs of the modern-day Sanhedrin. And I should probably put in a word of salute, I wish I could do it more often, to Pope Francis, because this is where he's coming from. He never accentuates, let's call it, the morally legal. He doesn't want to talk about them. He's big on mercy, and he does highlight the modern thrust, theologically, of where we've been at for many decades, and that is trying to accentuate what we call the horizontal dimension of the cross. You're reaching out to neighbor. And these people would argue that in the old days, the days that they despise, it was all vertical, the Latin mass, etc. Well, it's supposed to be both. And I'm welcome to chat with the Holy Father if he wants to pay my flight to Rome. <laughs> in fact, in the spirit of St. Catherine of Siena, I would jump at the opportunity. But I did pick up a few things from my Jesuit education and balance in the Catholic faith is right there, top of the list, of a true, sound Jesuit education. And even being the Pope, he doesn't get to drift away from that healthy integration of the vertical and the horizontal. It is the cross. Go to God, go to neighbor. Let's accentuate both and bring God's people home. My final thought on the heels of a recent experience that more or less highlights what we're talking about here. Two things. You don't have to take those lights down. In the old rite, we kept Christmas going to Candle Mass, February 2, Feast of the Lights. It's okay. Keep Christmas going. Who wants Christmas to end anyway? Don't buy into the culture's lies. Christmas started on December 25th, and really, Christmas tied 
goes to February 2nd, 40 days after Christmas. Recently, I expressed a desire to do dinner with a particular bishop, not of this particular diocese. And all of a sudden, I heard him at Mass being fairly adamant that Christmas is over. You know, back around January 6th? Well, Christmas itself, yes, but not Christmas tide. Well, don't you think I didn't make a phone call, ASAP, to his secretary? That he might reconsider all those, especially shut-ins and the elderly, or those who are sick, like myself this past Christmas season, who are just coming up for air and would like to enjoy Christmas. Do we have to put away our love of the baby Jesus as quickly as we can because of a new liturgical calendar? Do you love the baby Jesus is the much bigger question. And if you do, you're not in a hurry to put the lights out on him. Just a thought to ponder in this new year. Do things from the heart is exactly what Professor Street has been trying to tell us. This is WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. Have a great week, everyone. Let your light shine. That is what it's all about here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. But we need to hear your story. You want your voice to be his voice. That is making the faith known to others. Please, my number is 877-625-3727. Tim Kilcoin, TalkCatholic.com. St. Mother Teresa told us, your ministry is your work right where you are. Grab on to this microphone. God bless.